This is Sound Ideas. I'm Charlie Schlenker. A Bloomington attorney who focuses on legal aid in elder abuse cases says they see a lot of consumer issues. People with debt who are having trouble making ends meet because they have a debt that's being collected improperly people who are susceptible to scams. Megan McLaughlin Wood is tasked with addressing a gap in civil legal aid. Plus, all public colleges and universities in Illinois will start using what's called the Common Application for Students to Gain Admission. It'll save time and money. The Illinois Senate President talks about what the term fair maps means to him as legislative redistricting begins. And the winner of the Bloomington Human Relations Commission Black History Essay Contest shares her thoughts about a prominent African-American that it's important to remember. Here from Jada Thomas. All that and a news update on the way. This is Sound Ideas on WGLT. Support for Sound Ideas comes from Bloomington Normal Audiology, the best hearing device center in the Panagraph Reader's Choice Awards for the sixth year in a row. Bloomington Normal Audiology thanks the listeners and their continued vote of confidence as the leaders in hearing and technology. With a practice featuring five doctors, including two who wear hearing devices themselves, BNA takes a genuine interest in each patient and helps you keep hearing the most important sounds of your life. More information at bnaudiology.com. Bloomington Normal Audiology, here for you. This is Sound Ideas. I'm Charlie Schlenker. Let's run down some of the day's top stories. A bill state lawmakers say would expand voting rights is on its way to the governor after passing the Senate. It would increase vote-by-mail options and allow curbside voting. State Senator Jacqueline Collins says the bill would give groups such as people with disabilities the chance to cast a ballot when they might not be able to otherwise. When we protect voting rights, all voices are made more powerful. Republican and Democrat votes, the young and the old, the black and brown and white, all voices are heard. The bill received bipartisan support in the Senate, though seven Republican senators voted no. If Governor Pritzker signs the bill, it will go into effect immediately. Democratic lawmakers in Springfield have advanced a proposal to repeal the Illinois ban on rent control ordinances anywhere in the state. Illinois has prohibited any sort of rent control since 1997, but progressives have pushed for several years to lift the ban, citing the need for government intervention when low-income and minority renters get priced out of areas seeing rapid gentrification. Opponents of rent control warn of unintended consequences. Mike Meany of the Chicagoland Department Association says even just lifting Illinois' rent control ban would have a chilling effect on on building affordable housing. Artificial price caps lead to a slowdown in development. And I think we can all agree that less development of new housing is not the way to go in this market. Housing policy experts and economists from across the political spectrum overwhelmingly oppose the destructive policy of rent control. Instead, Meany and others wary of rent control say lawmakers should focus on initiatives to incentivize more affordable housing via property tax relief and other tax credits. Even if lawmakers approve the measure to repeal the Illinois rent control ban, it would still be up to individual city councils and village boards to pass ordinance that would regulate rent increases. The Illinois National Guard is helping vaccinate faculty and staff at Illinois State University. Rich Neely is commander of the Illinois National Guard. He's also an ISU graduate. Neely says no one in the service expected to be thrust into a global pandemic, but he says the work is rewarding. 
this is one of those missions where the National Guard is very excited to be part of the response because um, they they actually see the change coming. They they get to meet the public. The Illinois National Guard has about 60 service members supporting COVID-19 vaccination efforts in McLean County. This includes the mass vaccination site at Grossinger Motors Arena. Neely says they should be able to boost vaccine doses administered in McLean County by about 1,000 per day. 27 McLean County residents are hospitalized with COVID-19. That's the most the county has had since mid-January. And the county's coronavirus testing positivity rate continues to rise. It's at 4.6%. The McLean County Health Department announced 53 new coronavirus cases. More than 300 people are isolating at home. The health department is taking appointments for four first-dose vaccination clinics next week at Grossinger Motors Arena. McLean County Health Department Administrator Jessica McKnight says the department has scaled back or delayed various health promotion campaigns in the last year because COVID-19 has demanded so much time and energy. McKnight says the department hopes to bring vaping education to schools once all students are back in the classroom and bolster mental health first aid training. She says the training is online for now. With everything else with COVID, finding ways to adapt and how can we do these programs in the world that we're in right now. McKnight says many of the department's client services, including its dental clinic and HIV and STD testing, are at reduced capacity. She says the Women, Infants, and Children, or WIC program, remains mostly virtual with curbside pickup. Many millennials in Illinois and around the country are saddled with student loan debt. That makes it hard for them to put down payments on big purchases like homes. A new program called Smart Buy from the Illinois Housing Development Authority aims to help potential home buyers with student loan payments. In Illinois, about 17% of residents carry student loan debt. Mabel Guzman is a real estate agent and a member of the Chicago Association of Realtors. Speaking on the 21st show, she said helping millennials tackle this debt could help in other areas of their lives too. We really need to take critical steps in ensuring that people have a path forward into home ownership, but also, you know, into the job market where they're not going to be straddled with this debt and all they're doing is paying it down constantly over a period of time. Governor J.B. Pritzker announced the launch of Smart Buy late last year. The program is expected to reach up to a thousand potential buyers. On the same day as the Boulder, Colorado shooting where 10 people died, a shooting happened on Orlando Avenue in Normal. Bloomington Normal Moms Demand Action is pleased to see the Biden administration making major gun legislation a priority at the national level. Co-leader Karen Irvin says it's been 25 years since legislation has been passed. We can't accept it as another fact of life and we won't accept it. And so, like I said earlier, we feel like the ball is in the Senate's court right now to do something. Irvin says the pandemic has reduced mass shootings, but the gun violence and gun sales have increased. Irvin says Moms Demand Action is optimistic because the Biden administration is emphasizing public health, racial equity, and unifying the country issues. She says all three affect the prevalence of gun violence. This is Sound Ideas on 89.1 FM WGLT and WGLT.org. I'm Charlie Schlenker. Support for WGLT comes from Bloomington Normal Audiology. BNA continues its educational video series, Hear My Story, with local patient Robert Handley. Once I got the Bluetooth hearing aid, I'd say 90% of the people that I talk to on the phone, I can understand. Didn't have that before. Robert's full story can be found at bnaudiology.com. You're listening to Bloomington Normal's Public Media. 
A Bloomington attorney is part of a national push to make legal aid more available to victims of elder abuse. Megan McLaughlin Wood works for Prayer State Legal Services. She's also a fellow in the Equal Justice Works Elder Justice Program. Wood is tasked with addressing a gap in civil legal aid for victims in a 17-county region. In this conversation with Dana Vollmer, she says her work encompasses a lot of issues. We have seen a lot of consumer issues people with debt who are having trouble making ends meet because they have a debt that's being collected improperly, people who are susceptible to scams. um, And so they are using their their limited income or assets that they've saved for later in life um, on these sort of get rich quick scams or thinking that they're helping a family member in an emergency. We have seen physical abuse, emotional abuse, and a lot of financial exploitation cases. And those financial exploitation cases can take a lot of forms. Um, some are more subtle than others. The really obvious would be you know, a person acting as a caretaker, getting themselves added to a bank account, and then draining the bank account. But the less obvious um, are things like you know, moving in with an older adult and providing care, but also taking advantage of them financially. Or, you know, we've we've seen some things like transferring titles to the caregiver uh, for a mobile home, um, things that are difficult for people to undo on their own, and they need an attorney. Have any of these problems kind of gotten worse amid the pandemic with people, you know, not leaving their homes as much and not seeing family? Are these issues being identified as often? You know, I don't think that we have enough information to know that things are worse during a pandemic. But the concern is always that domestic abuse gets worse when people are under stress, when people are under economic stress. And we know that people are um, sharing households because of the economic stress of the pandemic. And it feels like this situation is ripe for elder abuse issues and The concern is that older adults that would typically have contact with the community through a senior center or adult day services or an in-home caregiver are not having that contact, uh, that person who could make a report on their behalf or, you know, let somebody know that they're concerned about what's going on in that home. 17 counties is a big area to cover. I'm curious if there's a difference in the problems in some of the more rural communities and the larger towns that you cover. I think so. The The legal challenges are different. Um, and then also, I think the way of life is different um, for some people in rural areas. Some of the issues are the same, um, older you know, adult children moving in and becoming a problem. That's That happens everywhere. Um, but for folks that are very rural, it's a lot more difficult for them to access services. So a lot of them only have law enforcement as an intervention. They don't have social services that are close by that, that may help to um, address some of these problems. And so how do you kind of identify and connect with the people that are in need of these services? Typically, we have gotten most of these cases through referrals from the ombudsman or adult protective services offices. 
the people who are on the front lines um, are usually the ones that identify the issues and refer them to us. And then we're also doing some additional outreach that we had not done as much of before. Um, and that includes just trying to distribute paper flyers and make this project accessible to people by phone. Um, so for people that don't have access to tech, uh, we, we want to reach them and give them a place to contact that doesn't require them to leave their home if that's not safe for them right now, or doesn't require them to go locate a computer. Typically, once we handle a case somewhere, uh, then people in that community spread the word that this type of service exists. And then it is fairly common that we would get similar cases from a geographic area. What has the caseload been like so far for this project? You know, I found that we have not had as many cases as we thought we would have, but the cases we have worked on have been incredibly complex. So some of them have three or four legal issues that have stemmed from the abuse or exploitation that they've experienced. They may need an order of protection and also assistance with changing their housing, um, breaking a lease because of abuse. And then they may need some advocacy with law enforcement or with um, the prosecutor's office to um, to enforce the protective order that they have. And then they may have some debt issues because part of the abuse was taking out credit cards in their name. We anticipated having more cases come in the door, but we also are hoping that with getting the word out about this project, uh, we're just experiencing a delay of getting the information out there and that cases will come once people start to find out that this service exists. That's Bloomington attorney Megan McLaughlin-Wood speaking with Dana Vollmer. For more information, go to WGLT.org. State lawmakers have kicked off their once-a-decade process to reshape the Illinois legislative and congressional maps. There's a problem. The federal government says 2020 census data won't be available to states until September, long past a June 30th deadline in the Illinois Constitution. Though lawmakers have blown past that deadline before, Democratic Senate President Don Harmon says he hopes to avoid having to punt the map-making process to a bipartisan commission. Harmon says Illinois should start redistricting now with census estimates. IPR Statehouse Editor Hannah Meisel speaks with Harmon about what he thinks is a fair map. I think Speaker Welch hit the nail on the head when he said a fair map is one that reflects the diversity of our state. Uh, I would like to see everybody at the table, all communities of interest heard, and uh, and through a, a thorough and thoughtful uh, redistricting process, come up with a map that fairly and equally represents the communities across the state. People get very animated about some of the weirdly shaped legislative districts and congressional districts and wards in Chicago. Does that make your list of things to worry about, or is it more important to join minority communities to create a district for that population, no matter how weird it looks? <laughs> <laughs> Too much importance is attached to shapes. It would be lovely if everything were organized in rectangles. But Illinois is not a rectangle, and there are plenty of uh, municipalities in the state that are incredibly irregularly shaped themselves. What's important in putting together a fair map is one that uh, reflects the communities of interest and, uh, and ties them together and gives everybody a seat at the table. 
speaking of rectangles, uh, some folks point to states like Iowa, which does map making via computer and ends up having mostly square legislative districts. But of course, Iowa is a state with a much more homogenous population than Illinois. Is there a happy medium for folks who advocate for that sort of extreme nonpartisan process? I, I think that the Iowa process has been sold as something it is not. Uh, a computer doesn't draw the districts. The people programming the computer do. Uh, Iowa is more homogenous, but there's not a single African-American in the Iowa Senate. And I, I don't know that that is a, a question of chance or, or, or not. Uh, Illinois has a richly diverse community and has led the way on representation of minority communities, particularly African-Americans. And I wouldn't trade places with Iowa uh, on that score any day. Um, it's always interesting to me that the very same things that people in you know, red states point to as a violation of the Voting Rights Act when it comes to drawing district maps, stuff like packing and cracking, districts are the very same thing that Democrats here do, but in service of upholding the Voting Rights Act and its ideals. Is that a double standard? We do our very best to fully comply with the Federal Voting Rights Act and to go beyond it. The Illinois Voting Rights Act adds uh, layers of obligations to us. And I'm very proud of the work that, that we have done to maximize the representation of all communities. Uh, I, I don't know that we could apply it differently if we wanted to, given the, the incredible diversity of, of the state. And it's not just racial diversity, it's geographic diversity, it's economic diversity. We want to make sure everybody has a seat at the table and all those voices are heard in the General Assembly. I think that it is important. I, I don't want to preordain any outcome, but I think everybody needs a seat at the table. And communities that have been marginalized in the past, uh, the, uh, the African-American community, the Latino, Latino, Latinx community, uh, they need to have their voices heard in the redistricting process. That's Illinois Senate President Don Harmon in conversation with IPR Statehouse Editor Hannah Meisel. This is Sound Ideas. I'm Charlie Schlenker. Beginning this fall, all 12 of Illinois' public universities will begin using the Common App, a single online application used by hundreds of colleges and universities across the country. Three public universities in Illinois already use that, in addition to 32 private institutions in the state. Governor J.B. Pritzker's proposed budget for FY 2022 includes a million dollars to help universities cover the cost of using the Common App. Lee Gaines speaks with Deputy Governor for Education Jesse Ruiz about the switch and why the Pritzker administration is pushing this change now. It's happening now because Governor uh, Pritzker has championed this in his last two budgets, providing support for our public universities to do this. There is some expense, but we think it's well worth it given the advantages it gives to all our students in Illinois. And so this is encouraging all of our public universities and will become one of only two states in the nation to have all its public universities on the Common App, which just takes out so many expense barriers and logistical barriers, makes it simpler for students to uh, afford themselves all the great options that exist in Illinois. And uh, so we're happy that this is happening and, and finally getting everybody on the Common App. What's the benefit of the Common App to students and their families? It, it removes some expense in the application process itself and, and takes a lot of time. As um, somebody who's got a, a college junior, I remember a few years back and all the various different applications, it's a big, uh, uh, and, and although my son did the bulk of the work, it's a big commitment of family time as well. 
And so it makes it easier for families to help explore all the options and make uh, applications and submit applications in one place. Historically, there's been a concern about out-migration, students from Illinois going to colleges and universities in other states. Is there a hope or a sense that switching to the Common App will encourage students to stay in Illinois as they pursue post-secondary education? We believe it will, that it makes it easier for them to choose an Illinois option. And there are hundreds of great Illinois options, um, both on the public and private sector side. Uh, And so we want to make sure that they're aware of them. They can easily avail themselves of those great opportunities and perhaps consider schools they may not have otherwise considered uh, in Illinois, particularly our public universities, um, our 12 public universities that have uh, amazing programs Uh, and curriculums of study uh, for the careers of the 21st century. And so that's what we want all Illinoisans to have the opportunity to access. And we think it will help students explore those opportunities that are world-class learning opportunities right here in their own home state that are are, uh, affordable and accessible. Why is it important to the governor and his administration that we invest in things like providing the Common App to all our public universities? Why does that matter? Well, to support our state institutions and also to support our students in, in obtaining the skills that we believe are be necessary for 21st century careers and hopefully careers that will keep them here in Illinois, help investing in our Illinois economy. Uh, and so it's a win-win on all sides that they're keeping our Illinois institutions robust with robust enrollments and uh, also hopefully growing the number of of Illinoisans who uh, achieve a higher education uh, uh, degree or certificate or training and making sure that more and more Illinoisans have access to it because that's, we're in a knowledge economy uh, and we know that. And so we wanna make sure all Illinoisans have opportunities to uh, obtain a higher education. And this does make it easier. That's Illinois Deputy Governor for Education Jesse Ruiz speaking with education reporter Lee Gaines. This is Sound Ideas. I'm Charlie Schlenker. Black history is an essential part of American history, not just during Black History Month, but all the time. WGLT, the City of Bloomington, and the Bloomington Human Relations Commission congratulate the 2021 Black History Essay Contest winners. WGLT brings you readings of those essays. Today, it's Jada Thomas of Bloomington High School and her first place essay. Here are her words. Mary W. Jackson had such a passionate love for science, it led her to the impromptu creation of her own legacy. Jackson acquired a dual degree in math and science. The ambition that Jackson had and her determination led her to become NASA's first Black female engineer in 1958. Mary paved the way for other Black women who shared an interest in engineering to pursue a serious career, as she was one of the very few female engineers during her time. Jackson fought for the ability to progress further past management level positions, not only creating a name for herself, but exhibiting that black women should be put on a higher pedestal in the workplace. Pushing for more respect in a not only male dominated profession, but also of white majority, her determination was rooted from something deeper than just a source of income. Pushing to raise the standards in the workplace and use her abilities to the fullest, The only way to grab everyone's attention and show them her talents was to put in the work. Jackson began her career in NASA in the West Area Computing Unit that was segregated. 
It is noted that Mary Jackson may have been the only black female aeronautical engineer in this field in the 1950s. Jackson's successful move to integrate herself into the then segregated West Area Computing Unit impacted the workplace one step at a time. She proved that black women could work in higher positions and produce the same amount of effort, if not more, than their white colleagues. Without her help pioneering integrated workplaces with higher offered positions to the black population, black men and women may have still been in the same predicament and fighting for their representation in higher level positions. Jackson has influenced my life, pushing me to break down barriers and to never doubt the level of my intelligence. Seeing her accomplishments pushes me every day to work harder and reach for the stars. Jackson's determination has shown me that anything is possible when you put your mind to it. Being able to recognize one's intelligence is any individual's most powerful ability. Mary and her husband used their advantages to help recruit women into engineering, mathematician, and scientist positions. She worked hard to provide NASA with its next generation of females. In 1962, Mary and fellow engineers Katherine Johnson and Dorothy Vaughn helped to send the first American astronaut into orbit. Although they did not receive adequate recognition for their roles in this monumental moment for America, this was still a big win for the Black community. This public success story of Black women may have pushed other young Black girls to pursue their dreams and more rewarding careers. For young Black girls, seeing Black women in this time, especially in positive ways in mainstream media, is slim to none. So this success story may have helped to improve members within the Black communities and even outsiders looking into the communities to see Black women as more than just a statistic. Being able to, in some ways, be a part of something so big in America was a good feeling that we were moving in the right direction as a whole. Jada Thomas is a Bloomington High School student. She is the first place winner of the Black History Essay Contest sponsored by the City of Bloomington Human Relations Commission. Thanks for choosing Sound Ideas on WGLT, made possible in part by Bloomington Normal Audiology. I'm Charlie Schlenker. You can find Sound Ideas interviews and stories at WGLT.org. You can subscribe to Sound Ideas on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or NPR One. We want to know what you think of Sound Ideas. Comment on our Facebook page, we're WGLTFM, or follow us on Twitter, we're all at WGLT News. This is WGLT, Bloomington Normal's public media.